Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream with a great guest that I think you're really going to enjoy. So Jonathan Peugeot is somebody who gets into the symbolism behind things. He talks about narratives. He talks about what it's like to look at this world through many different lenses. And I know many people are very excited to have him on. So thank you for coming on, man. Great. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is great. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. So I think a lot of people who have found your work talking about, you know, different ways to understand the world through narratives, through story structures, but you have a very interesting uh, kind of approach to this, the way you came into this space. You're an icon carver, you're Orthodox Christian, you were doing that. A lot of people learned about you, I think, probably from Jordan Peterson, but obviously you have a very deep knowledge. It's it's not just your artistic ability. You obviously have a an understanding of the different stories and the way they connect to meaning. How did you get here? What was that route that took you to this place where you're not just an artist, but you're also talking about all of these things? Yeah. So, I mean, I studied fine art in school, but already then I was interested in reading. I read a lot of philosophy, even during my degree in art. And uh, by the end of my degree, well, maybe not by the end, after my degree, maybe like a year after my degree, I realized that I really wanted nothing to do both with contemporary art, but also with academia in general, because a lot of the crazy stuff that people see now or that I've seen in the last 10 years that was that has been happening in academia, you can imagine that in the art world, it was already there in the 90s when when, you know, when when I was in school. And so I could already see all this stuff coming, you know, over the hill. And I really wanted nothing to do with it. And so I, I left academia, left contemporary art and started let's say, studying things on my own. I did do some theology, study in theology and did a few things here and there, but mostly it was through my own reading and with my brother, both of him and I did extensive reading and researching and thinking in our 20s. Uh, and then there was a big loop. I discovered orthodoxy and I realized that in orthodoxy, I could be an artist in a way that made sense, in a way that integrated the different aspects of my life together. And so that's when I became uh, Orthodox, also because of the theology, because of the mystical aspect of the of the theology of the Eastern Church. Um, but all of that time, so it's just kind of funny because it, people kind of knew me or Jordan met me as a carver, but I never saw myself as really as a carver. It, it, I never saw myself as being a certain thing. I, I see myself as having a way of seeing the world and carving is one way of implementing it into my life which is, you know, I see the, ne the necessity to kind of integrate these different aspects and different levels together in their purpose and in their meeting. Uh, and for me, icon carving was a way to do that, both to plunge into the language of the church, the visual language of Christianity, um, and then to actually be there in the workshop, you know, hammering away. It's kind of like how people do jujitsu, you know, or, or do martial arts and feel like it's a way to understand reality in your body, right? It's not just mm -hmm. up here, but it's like, being facing oppositional forces, understanding the resistance of matter, understanding the desire to kind of to let's say to shape things in a certain direction. So that's the way to understand that is, is that I don't really actually feel like I'm first and foremost an artist, actually. One of the things that I found very interesting about you is the way that you approach, I think, a lot of the political or cultural issues that people have today, that the way that they look at the world. A lot of people, I think, are often scared of people who don't directly take things in in a a hyper rational way. And uh, one of the things that I saw was uh, you did a tweet. Let me just read it because it was is a little uh, little poem. 
is a rockabye lock on the treetop. When the wind blows, the enlightenment will rock. And when the bow breaks, the enlightenment will fall. And down will become freedom, the enlightenment and all. And when you posted that tweet, uh, it got some some pretty interesting reactions. Jane Lindsay uh, immediately called you a fascist, which I, I you know endeared me to you because the Lindsay likes to spurg out at a lot of people yeah. uh, who, who who aren't huge Enlightenment fans. But can you explain that tweet a little bit? Why why did that strike at the core of so many people? Yeah, well, it, the conversation had already begun, by the way, and so Lindsay appeared on one of my tweets where I was talking about something happening at OpenAI, right? During the kind of weird coup that was going on, but we don't know exactly what it is. But during that moment, uh, there were some articles being posted about the new leader, the interim leader of OpenAI. And there was one in the future that talked about all these weird rituals that they were doing at OpenAI and how they made like little statuettes and they were kind of invoking the true AI and, and trying to banish the old AI with all these kind of weird little rituals. And I was just pointing out how it's like the world of the future is religious, folks. Like you just can't help it. It's going to happen. So the question is, which way do you want it to go? Uh, and then Lindsay said, he said something like, don't do the inevitability spell. That's bullshit. And then I started to answer and then went back and forth. And then he obviously did James Lindsay and exploded and started insulting me and doing all that stuff. But that was mostly that that particular poem was accompanied with an image, which was a carving by Goya that so Goya, Goya made this carving called the, the sleep of reason produces monster or the dream of reason produces monster. And it's an image of a man at a desk. He's working on some text, but he's a fallen asleep. And then there are all these kind of monsters that are appearing behind him. And my, my contention is something that I've talked about several times, criticizing Steven Pinker about this as well, is that there's something about enlightenment rationalism, which just ignores an aspect of reality which just ignores it. It's like it pretends as if it doesn't exist or as if it's just something that has to be banished. But that aspect of reality, the unreasonable aspect of reality, wh whichever way you see it, uh, is part of our perception and our experience and part of reality. And so the Enlightenment in some ways, my contention is that the Enlightenment produced a shadow within itself and that there is in the Enlightenment already, right at the outset, you have both a kind of rationalism, but then also you have alchemy and magical systems and secret societies and all of these two things just happen at the same time. Freemasonry is a byproduct of the enlightenment, right? It's like at the same time, it's all happening. Rosicrucianism, all this occultism are the kind of shadow of the enlightenment, but not just the shadow, but deeply ingrained with it. Right. Um, and some, many of the enlightenment, like Descartes spent a large part of his life trying to contact Rosicrucians and was in contact with Rosicrucians. And was, you know, there was this discussion between the more kind of esoteric occultist aspect of the enlightenment and the hyper-rationalist uh, aspect of the enlightenment. And one of the contentions of some of the more English enlightenment types in the modern world is that I think they're trying to rewrite history and tell us that there's this enlightenment, which is basically just the English enlightenment, to be honest, and then everybody else is counter-enlightenment. So like calling Kant counter-enlightenment is just like, this is just... I mean, this is just trying to rewrite the narrative to for your own purpose in order to kind of justify certain things. But it's not a reasonable, it's not a reasonable position. And so I was poking a little bit and trying to say it's like, you know, Mahkid Saad is an enlightenment thinker. I don't know what to tell you. He, and there are many of those figures right at the outset that have those two parts to it. And you can't understand the American, the institution of the American state without understanding the relationship between the enlightenment 
and the secret societies, the relationship between the Enlightenment and the occultism that was pervasive at the same time. If you just say, oh, no, we'll just ignore that occultist stuff. Well, it's just going to come back. And by the time you by the time you, you you realize what's going on, you'll have your AI God like, you know, ruling over you and you won't have understood how you got there. So that was basically the point of that. Yeah, it feels like there's a very weird PR thing that happens with the Enlightenment where they just want to keep this this idea that it's hyper rationalism and the Enlightenment means science or the Enlightenment means rationality. And that's the only thing that it's attached to. And those things are owned specifically by the Enlightenment. And so any questioning of it, any acknowledgement that we're moving beyond it, that there, that we, you know, might there might be aspects of it that are limiting or or false. That's those are direct attacks on rationality and science and reason, and therefore, you know, that that that's there's no way you could ever counter this and be a good person, or yeah. any way you could could draw up uh, you know any kind of conclusions that are beyond it and be a good person. I think that's why so many people panic when you know the Enlightenment gets questioned. But it, it it's also because I mean I think on the one hand you have to be historically honest if you want to even have the debate. If you start and you just say. You say, oh, the Enlightenment, you know, and you see Pinker does it all the time. Pinker says the Enlightenment is it, it's rash, it's rationalism, you know, democracy and individualism. You need those three. That's the Enlightenment. That's what we want. And then in his books, he'll he'll quote Locke like no tomorrow. But it, Locke was not a democracy democracy guy. Right. It's like the, the, he was an authoritarian and believed in absolute monarchy and the absolute monarchies of that period are Enlightenment phenomena. Right. Absolute monarchy is an enlightenment phenomenon. It is not a, a medieval or early modern phenomenon. It is an enlightenment phenomenon. And it's because there is a conflict between rationality and and democracy. Like, I don't know what to tell you. It's like, yes. so if you're going to you're going to have one and the other and then you all you're going to do is complain that everybody votes for the wrong person all the time because it's like, well, this is not a rational thing to do. Anyways, I'm just saying that the first thing to do is to be honest about what happened in that time and to be honest also about the relationship between the even like in terms of Lindsay, hermeticism, modern hermeticism in terms of people like Böhm and all of the esoterists that came up in in the Europe, they're they're like this with the Enlightenment. It's a discussion that's happening all through Europe. And to just say all these things that I like about the Enlightenment, they're the real thing, and all of these are the counter Enlightenment. It's just it's actually just it's just doesn't hold if you look at what happened and how things developed. So it's like, you know, Voltaire praised the monarchs, praised the absolute monarchs, came to England and praised Charles I because he was an enlightenment monarch and imposed reason on his people. Like you can't ignore this stuff. Yeah, I think there really is a, a concern that this will change our political theology, that if we don't have kind of this current uh, weird PR version, instantiation of the enlightenment, yeah, Carl Schmidt said that basically the uh, the the constitutionalism that has come to kind of dominate was a, a transfer into kind of the deism that was popular during the time. It's the removing of the need of kind of the exception uh, by the divine. You know, if you can just plan everything out constitutionally, you don't ever have to worry about you know the the intervention of the monarch or the intervention, the state of exception created by the government. And I, I think that a lot of people are worried that if you you know kind of move beyond uh this this very carefully uh controlled story of the enlightenment you might have to reconsider you know certain aspects of of kind of human yeah. the, the way that social organization is set up and i i understand that but the reality is that 
rationalism doesn't account for the for the reason that nations exist. So if you're going to, and I mean this really seriously, that is that rationalism doesn't account for why a group of people care to be joined together in a union and what it is that justifies that and what it is that prevents that from taking over and becoming globalism. And so that, or, or just becoming, I don't know what They're like, there is no. And so when, when people start to ask questions and say, well, why are we a nation? What makes the Germans or the Americans or the Canadians or this, is it just an accident? It's just, just accidents of history that makes us a nation. It's not something about something we care about in common, something that brings us together and that is a common point of interest, a common point of care, which binds us together. And so if I start to point to that, then people just freak out and say, oh, it's like, oh, no, now we've got ethno-nationalism down the, down the street. Now we've got Christian nationalism coming at us. But you still haven't answered the question of why it is that you're a nation and how it is that you're going to fight globalism if you think that's what you should be doing. Because it seems like actually rationalism seems to move towards globalism naturally because there is no reason to, and even not just globalism, but ultimately, you know, uh, caring about things that aren't even human, you know, starting to think that other things that aren't human should be part of your union. And so, you know, vegetarianism and, you know, like, you know, not wanting to hurt animals and then ultimately, ultimately AI as being, you know, intelligent beings that need to be included in your union because you don't have any way to create binding of care and union and unity within your kind of rationalistic system. The identities are, you act as if the identity is already given or are taken for granted. Maybe is the best way to say that. Yeah. I mean, it feels like classical liberalism is designed to get rid of the particulars, right? It's, to, it's designed to kind of break down many of those barriers in, or not acknowledge many of the things that you're talking about. And like you said, they're very worried about the idea that people would start thinking about what would create a nation. So they just kind of scream loud enough, like, no, no, like if, if we just can't go that way. I don't have an answer. We can't have an answer. Answers are dangerous. We have to remove the political. We have to remove identity. We have to remove the idea that there's anything beyond kind of a rational uh, 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 contract base uh, for any kind of nation, any time of type of yeah. government because if we move any further beyond that we might have to uncover some old gods they might return in a way that's right. that the old could be gods will return yeah. because one of, one of the even the the basic problem that we're seeing happen of course again with the problem of liberalism is that it takes for granted the individual it takes for granted the individual as a unit as a solid unit as something which can be only quant can be quantified as one but as we move down the hierarchy of qualities and of binding we realize that people are splitting up even in themselves. So there's a relationship between not understanding how things bind towards one, let's say in a nation, in a family, in, in any type of group of care, and watching the mental health crisis take over and people identifying with all these little aspects of themselves and being tyrannized by all these little identity things that are going on in them. These are these things are all related because we, we aren't capable of, we don't, we don't, understand how identities work and how identities stack up and how they function. That's one of the things that I've been pushing, you know, working on recently, which is to help people understand a kind of subsidiary idea of identity, which accounts for complexity, which accounts for multiplicity and unity. But that happens at first within yourself because you're actually not just one thing. You're a million things. And those million things, they get bound up into one and that unity exists. 
but it doesn't exist just taken for granted. There's a reason why it exists. There's a manner in which unity of a person comes together into something that's coherent. Uh, and if you don't understand that, then you won't be able to understand how it scales up either. You mentioned the kind of the worry of universality, that it seems like it's going to continue to expand, that there, there seems to be no way to limit it in kind of the current framework. Is I think part of that is people are worried about postmodernism. I've heard, you know, uh, of course, Jordan Peterson has, has you know, talked about it in many cases, but it, it seems like a, a lot of conservatives, especially, have kind of learned to be terrified of the idea of postmodernism. But in some ways, doesn't postmodernism allow them to once again draw those boundaries in a way that isn't available to them in kind of the, the current understanding? Well, this is the strange, this is actually the strange uh, contradiction about postmodernism. And it's one which I think both Jordan Peterson and James Lindsay get absolutely right. Like in the sense that even though I think Jordan doesn't understand postmodernism that well, uh, James definitely understands postmodernism and he understands that the only, the real thing behind postmodernism, it's a, it's a kind of veiled Marxism, or at least postmodernism enacted is veiled Marxism. So you could argue that some of the postmodernists, the thinkers, you know, were not, wouldn't have identified with communism and that some of the far left opposed the postmodernists when they came on the scene. That's all true. But it's as soon as it gets enacted, it happens using the same kind of revolutionary type of tropes that led to the kind of communist ideas. And so James gets that hundred percent right. And he's in, and for all, you know, for the, the fact that I'm annoyed that we had this conflict, I think that James is one of the best people in the world to help, others understand this and he's been amazing at doing that so but well, postmodernism you... like by the way i think that there's some things about postmodernism that are useful right really and i and i've said that many times and and it 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 has to do mostly with understanding how margins work because one of the problems of ration rationalism is that it tends to especially like it tends to not understand how hierarchies work because it wants to level things and because it tries to level things and doesn't understand how hierarchies work, then it never totally understood how identities have margins and exceptions. And so you have this swing, you could say, in the modern world that 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 accounts for a lot of things, even genocide and and you know the Nazis, which is this weird swing between absolute identity and kind of revolutionary tropes. So you have this this pendulum that's moving between a kind of idea of, of, of identity with a marginal line that's completely contained, which is reflected in the nation state and the border, right? The idea that a border is a, is a, is a normal, completely organic uh, reality, that's, that's just not true. It's a very modern phenomenon, the idea of a marginal line as a border. Usually there's buffers between, there used to be buffers between empires, buffers between states. There were a few marginal lines, sometimes you needed them, but most of the time, no. And so the idea of understanding how a margin works, postmodernism helps us understand that very well. And if conservative types don't understand how margins work, then they have, they're just going to be swallowed up by the, you know, by the sea monster, because they don't even know what they're dealing with. They don't know what, what margins, how margins function and what they, how they functioned in relationship to identity. You pointed out the fact that I think a lot of people are stuck with individualism in a way that isolates them from all the other different aspects of being of who they are and how they identify and how they kind of understand their place in communities and those kind of things. Do you think that's 
purely political? Do you think that's technological? Is is this a is this a natural outflow of kind of scaling societies to a certain level? What what do you think is, is it all these things together? Where did this come from? Where did it come from? Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, I hate to be the, the 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 guy who says nominalism, but let's say nominalism. I, th I think this is a, a very a story that started at the end of the Middle Ages, that there really is this this tendency both to like if you look at what Occam did, is that he kind of put God way up in heaven, right? He actually wanted to make God so absolute, you know, that nothing could touch God, nothing, nothing could talk about God. And so he puts God up in the heavens, and then everything down here becomes arbitrary to some extent, like the arbitrary manifestation of God's will. And there's no connection between the two. And I think that's the beginning of the problem is that we don't have the, the way that the ancients would think, like the way that normal, say the, the, the medieval Christian or the early Christians, or even the Romans for that matter, the most traditional societies, they have a, an understanding of analogy. Things function through analogies. And so although the, the created world isn't God and isn't, isn't directly pointing to God, but is always indirectly analogous and, and is manifesting the qualities of God in the world. And so that makes that subsidiary structure that, that I mentioned earlier at the outset. And so it means that like, this is, you could see it as Trinitarian language too in Christianity. It's like, you're not an individual, you're a person. Individuals don't exist isolated from each other. That's just nonsense. We exist in communion with each other. We exist in relation to each other. And that is the manner of our being. Our manner of our being is to be communal in essence. That is being a human is. So when we have this weird idea of an atomized individual in relationship to God, you see that in some Protestant kind of approach too. It's like, it's me and God, right? And everything else is suspicious. All the churches are suspicious. Everything that manifests anything else is suspicious. So you can see all through the history, this weird movement. Uh, but to some extent, it didn't have its full uh, consequences because it was surfing on normality. It was kind of surfing on the world. But by the time you get to the suburbs, and then it's like, what do you do now? Because now you live, you live in a blank suburb. You don't know your neighbors. There's no town center. There's no place for people to congregate. There's no place, no place for people to, to meet each other. You take your car, you drive to the mall, you take your car, you drive to work. And it's basically now you are like distributed dots on a on a on a surface. And there's no communion between you. And what happens, and this is the thing that I've been trying to point out too in the in the past year, this part of the uh, the I wrote a I wrote a paper with Jordan Peterson about subsidiarity, trying to help people see what it is we're talking about, which is that as you do this, as you fragment people into individuals like down here, the reality is, is that there is a subsidy. There's a there should be a subsidiary structure. So there are certain uh, functions that are taken up by subsidiary structures. So they're functions for the family, functions for communities, functions for cities. And all of these functions are, are, you know, they're just normal functions that need for reality to exist. But as you move towards individuality and anarchism and rebellion and all this stuff, you're calling for authoritarianism necessarily because those structures have to be taken up. Mm -hmm. So what happens is that the state, as you become a more and more of an individual, the state will inevitably take up all those responsibilities and we'll start to, to compete with family. We'll start to compete with church. We'll start to compete with business. We'll start to take up more and more power into itself 
to make the individuality more and more possible. So there's a complete relationship between rainbow coalition type thinking of completely idiosyncratic, furry, SM like idios, you know, an idiosyncratic desire of some of being a freak, and like, and then a system that is more and more powerful. Those two things happen simultaneously. Similarly to the way I talked about how nominalism separates heaven and earth. And so you can see it, it's just like, and it moves outside even of the state. At some point, this system that gets more and more powerful is actually going to see the state as competition for it and will become like some global whatever. So, yeah, I guess, so the destruction of these intermediate institutions that kind of secure power for the state, obviously that's in its interest, but it also seems that people select for this. There seems to be a preference to, to be able to abandon these bonds if possible. It once once the technology or once the scale of society reaches the point where you can leave the care of your elderly parents or the education of your children or you know any of these things to the state, people almost seem to automatically do so. And yeah. so, and so I wonder is that was and then this they process- despair though. By the way, right? They do in despair. Right. But but I'm just but I'm just wondering is there you know if, since this seems to be the revealed preference of humans when it's an option. Is is that does that mean that like the that material abundance and scale of society is just always going to result in kind of this atomized push towards authoritarianism? Is is that an inevitable thing that happens in the human? Is this a cyclical thing? Like how, how does this management work? I, I don't think it's inevitable, and hmm. and I don't think I think it might be cyclical. That's possible. I don't think it's inevitable because. You know, I you know, for example, like in the Bible, there's this image that's that's given to us of the heavenly Jerusalem. And the heavenly Jerusalem is an image of civilization, abundant civilization that is properly ordered towards the best things and has everything in its place. You know, and so it's like the techne is on the outside and is protecting. And in the middle, there's the tree and the river, and then there's the the, the self-sacrificial lamb, which is the absolute center of it all. And so it, a self-sacrificial system would be able to make civilizational poss- civil, civilization possible. I do believe that. I don't know. And the problem with that is that the only way to go about that is to do it yourself. Like there's just no other way. The only way to do it is to do it yourself. Because if you, as soon as you start to say, well, if only these people would do this, then you're already stepped outside of what that what that means, uh, and so and so when people ask me like, what's your political vision? Like, what's your what's your political you know what do you think's the political solution? And my answer is always become a better person. That's my political solution. I know it's boring and I know it's annoying because you wish you could have a big scheme of how to reverse globalism, but I don't think I think it's too late. Like in terms of of terms of uh, you know. So I do believe that the best solution is to become a saint, like to, 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 to be transformed, and that will reverberate, and the and the truth and the goodness will survive uh, the madness that is coming in, in the next few years. Maybe twenty twenty four. Man, twenty twenty four is going to be a crazy year. Yeah, I think I think that's a pretty safe <laughs> prediction on your part. So, uh, so I wanted to ask you with 
as you said, people, they fall you know into despair when they fall into these systems, when they individualize like this. And I think the reason 2024 is going to be a crazy year is we are watching, you know, kind of the, the scale of society stretch to its limits. I, I just don't think that people can exist spiritually or, or any other way, uh, you know, continue on in this manner. Uh, and, and so I wonder, do you think that we'll see a shift towards a more particular society? I mean, obviously certain things would kind of have to come apart, but do, do you think that, you know, uh, people who are building smaller communities, faith communities are going to be the ones that are more likely to make it through. And those are going to be the kind of things that can continue going forward. Or do you think that there's a possibility that they could continue to try to unify things in a more globalist way that that could be further successful for a while? Yeah, I think we're in it for a while, yeah. uh, you know, in terms of the, the manner in which the system will become tyrannical. I think that what we're going to see, and it's some, we already saw it during COVID to some extent, which is that th there's, there's again this image. Sorry, people like hear me talking about revelation. Like, by the way, I'm not like a revelation and as it like it's predicting specific events in the future. I see the book of Revelation as a pattern and as a kind of image of how reality works. And there are images in there that can help you understand certain patterns of reality. So there's an image in there of a, of a whore riding a beast. Uh, and it's a very powerful image because the beast is civilization in that context. It's it's like all the civilization joined into one. It's like civilization of civilizations. Uh, and then on the, the the back of that is the is the whore. And that accounts for what you talked about before, which is that, you know, the, if the system offers people what they want, you know, then they'll give up their freedom. They'll give up their 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 families. They'll give up their churches for their immediate desire. Right. Uh, their their lascivious and immediate desires and so so basically we're drowning in porn and video games and whatever the hell it is that that it comes to your fancy you basically have access to it you know um but that at some point is not sustainable because society fragments to a point where it's gonna shatter it's not gonna hold together and then what happens is that the beast kills the whore and then the clampdown comes and then everything that led to to it it goes away and now you know so you move from weimar to the reich you move from you know decadent late late 19th century russian uh society to stalin you know it's like you move from the revolution to napoleon or whatever however you want to see it but it's like the, the things don't just keep going in one direction if you push something too hard in one direction, at some point it falls and then something else comes. And so I think that that if we're going to see something happen soon and it, it it it's not I don't think it's completely arbitrary that we're about 100 years from when it happened last. You know, we're, we're around that time. I think that that seems to be what happened. And we saw a bit of that during COVID. So. So Samuel Huntington in his book, Clash of Civilizations, uh, predicted that we were moving out of a time of ideology, especially economic ideology, and returning to probably a time that was more traditional where it was it was uh, civilizations partitioned, particularly by religion. Mm. And I wonder what you think about, you know, if if we're going to see if globalism is is going to continue and but then we have, you know, some of these crackdowns, do you see a point at which. Uh, we're going to see, uh, you know, th those that are able to break away from, I guess, kind of the, the globalist network. 
would reorganize under kind of more the civilizational religious blocks as opposed to, you know, capitalism versus socialism or these mm. kind of things. That is definitely possible. Um, it's hard to tell. I don't, it's hard for me to, I usually don't like to predict specifics. I like to see like the big pattern. Sure. Uh, I do think that there will, of course, be, we already saw that too. Like there will be a resistance to the globalist thing. And I don't see, I don't see anything but religion making that possible. Like I don't see anything strong enough in the cultural sphere to make it possible to make people want to resist the system in a way that will be completely detrimental to themselves. And I think that religion maybe it might be the only reason why. And that's also why there was a weird convergence of, although a lot of religious people went along with the COVID stuff, those that resisted, a lot of them tended to have some background religious idea that I'm not going to give up my will and my entire being to, to the state. So I think we'll probably see more of that. I mean, I, in my, what I would hope, and I don't know if it's possible, but what I would hope is at some point for some of the religious uh, people would see that, that they have, at least in this situation, they have more in common than they have different, you know, and that it, and that there could be some kind of cooperation, but we'll see. I, I think uh, I wouldn't be the first to uh, notice that wokeness is kind of a, a Protestant Christian heresy. It's a, a kind of the removing of of uh, you know uh, of the divine from kind of Protestant Christian ethos. And I've seen a lot of people say that Christianity itself, a lot of a lot of critics of Christianity would say that Christianity itself kind of inevitably leads to this universalism that that kind of looks like wokeness. What would you say to people who say that Christianity necessarily has to uh, devolve into what we're seeing now? So I'm going to say something people I don't expect, but I would say that I think that it is possibly true that Christianity was inevitably going to become that, but it's not something to be celebrated. And in some ways, it's not something that even Christ would, let's say it this way, right? Christ chose his betrayer, right? And Christ chose the disciple that would deny him. And, and, and the idea of Antichrist is part of the Christian story, right? And so the idea that Antichrist will come out of Christianity is part of the Christian story. And so I think that that is something which is ultimately, it's a, in the in the end is going to surprise us with a with a kind of restoration and a and a return to something but th but there's a manner in which i think you're right that the atheists and the secularists and the communists and the revolutionaries they really come out of judaism and christianity they don't come out of anything else like they're not they're not romans they're not they're not northern norwegian pagans like they're you know they're not african they're that's where they come out of. And even when it happens in other countries, that's where the ideas come from, from us. And so it seems like there is a kind of weird cosmic way that this is going to, to play out. But I think we also have the tools to see the difference between true religion and this factitious woke uh, madness that we're seeing. Uh, and I think, 
I think actually like the story of Judas is a good place to see that actually in the story of Judas. So there's a, there's an event. There aren't that many events in the story of Judas in scripture, but there's one event where there's a, there's a, uh, a woman that comes to worship Christ and she, she, she washes his feet with her hair. And so she's basically like giving this really expensive perfume, which is like worth a month's salary or something crazy, like this huge amount of, of money. And she, she, she pours it on his feet and she, she, she cleans his feet with her, with her hair. And it's a moment of like humility and worship and everything. So you can agree with the worship or not. It doesn't matter in the, understanding the story. She basically gives something up to something which she perceives as being higher than her. And she, she, she gives it up. And Judas says, you know, you should have given that money to the poor. And in the text, it says that in reality, he didn't really want to give the money to the poor. He basically was going to pocket the money himself. That's it. That's it. Christ tells us to help the poor. Christ tells us to help the victims, to help the marginalized. But when that is done to gain power on yourself, right? when you use that language in order to give yourself power and in order to manipulate that in order to gain power, that is exactly what Judas was doing. And so this is what we see in the weird, like you see it in these weird, you know, like the, 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 the weird advocate, the weird advocacy type people, like even in BLM, you could see that. It's like basically the people who set BLM up ended up becoming massively rich and buying houses and setting themselves up and using victimization narratives in order to make themselves more powerful. And as soon as you see that someone doing that, you know that you're in the wrong, you're in the wrong camp. Like this is not the, this is not what true religion is about. What do you think about the expansion of Orthodox Christianity in the West? It's obviously a phenomenon that was particularly tied, uh, I think, to, you know, the Russian church or the Greek church or, you know, Balkans, those kind of areas. And now it's becoming much more popular. What, what do you think about it? What that means, uh, that why that shift might occur and how the church kind of takes it? Does a church take on a different flavor or a different aspect when it moves West? How, do, how does that work? Definitely. I mean, orthodoxy is the best of orthodoxy is something like a joining of unity and multiplicity together. Right. On the one hand, you have this very strong sense of unity. You have a strong sense of communion in terms of, of theology, in terms of the liturgy. But then there's always a local flavor that happens. Right. A Russian church and a Greek church are extremely different. Serbian church, Romanian churches, all these churches are different, though they are in communion together and they're they're bound. And so. One of the things that orthodoxy, I think, offers uh, the West is a is a a type of theology which can help us account for reality, right? A, a kind of there is something of that in Catholicism too, and if you even in in scholasticism, like there's still some of that where it's not just talking about morality or how to live your life. It is talking about that, but it is also giving an account for the structure of how things work, and I think that that's something that orthodoxy uh, offers. But as it moves west, it will definitely take on some aspects of the culture in which it's moving. It's just something that's inevitable. And, we, and it's also fine that that happens. You spoke about uh, kind of AI and how that means we're moving towards a religious world where we like it or not. Is that part of kind of the postmodern scenario where you, you see a reenchantment of the world, but maybe with the most horrific things first? Yeah. <laughs> I, it seems that that is the case. It seems that that is the case. And it's true of also of the rainbow stuff 
uh, you know, if you're paying attention to the rainbow stuff, you see that it is not just about a kind of evacuated Christianity, but it is a redefinition of the de of deity as exception. And so the idea of I mean, you've probably seen it like trans is sacred. You've probably seen those types of statements where it's like also saying I am all things right. I am not one thing. I'm like the Trinity. I am one in many. I am like this kind of language where there's a, a desire to set up the exception as divine. Um, you know, this is something which I think is it, it is this kind of upside down uh, religion, but it is happening. And like I've said before, the world is being re-enchanted. That's, it's just happening. You, if you, anybody paying attention during the George Floyd protest would have seen that we saw a, a moment of religious ecstasy in the United States. We saw a, 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 an event that was as clo was close to what you could have read in, you know, ancient Greek writings about the Sparagmos or whatever, and the, you know, the women on the mountain and this kind of ecstatic uh, jubilation and, uh, in the in the sacrificial victim, like it was nuts. I mean, we're really so the sacred is like returning at full speed. And there are a lot of early modern, early 20th century, and and obviously postmodern thinkers that were actively trying to do that from a kind of Luciferian or upside down world. I was recently talking to a friend of mine about Georges Bataille, who was a French theorist, super famous, you know, lefty. Everybody loved him. Uh, uh, he was in the Academie Francaise, I think, even. And he like was literally pushing for a kind of ecstatic atheism that even involved images of human sacrifice and and all of this kind of stuff. It's like it's been there kind of bubbling up uh, from the time of, of Mahkid Sad, like right from the time of the beginning of the of the um, of the uh, of the Enlightenment. It's just there. And now it's starting to really the fruits of it are starting to show. And we're going to see a lot more of it. Like Burning Man is also, it's like a kind of tame version of it. I think Floyd was way more authentic in the sense that it was this kind of spontaneous ecstasy. Uh, Burning Man is like a kind of weird desire to create this atheistic, um, you know, uh, ecstatic religious moment that doesn't mean anything, you know. Um, but we're going to see, and I think next year, this this, this year we're going to see for sure. There's every reason for there to be riots and explosions. So, you know, just like... Sorry, Sorry go ahead. I, it just takes one person to die for it to happen. So, and you've got what is it, like 400 million people in the United States. So, there's a good chance that someone will die enough to create an image of sacrifice again, and then you'll have another. Yeah. Sorry, folks. <laughs> it's like I, I hate to be the the bringer of doom. You know. Uh, unfortunately, you're on the right show to lack optimism. My my <laughs> audience is more than used to it at, at this point. Um, so you, you talked a little bit uh, about AI and I, I'm wondering what you think about it. I, I talked to a lot of people about it and the opinions are all over the place. So some people say, oh, this is nothing to worry about. It's, it's just, you know, some algorithm repeating things back to you. And I'm like, oh no, that's already bad. Uh, mm. but, but, uh, you know, others think that this is, this is kind of, uh, the summoning of demons in a, in a different form. And I'm wondering also on top of kind of your, your opinion of the way people are interacting with AI, what you think about its deployment in art? Because you're somebody who does art and specifically art that is you know, supposed to kind of translate something about the divine and what you think that, you know, kind of the implications of a computer doing that or AI doing that is. Yeah. So 
I, I think I was going to say some things that are going to sound really uh, shock, not shocking, but that are going to sound extreme, but they really aren't. And so it's like, take what I'm saying, listen carefully. Okay. Uh, and so I do believe that if you want to understand what divination is, like old world divination, I think AI is a kind of hyper divination, you know? And so that is, that is one thing. And so the idea that you're summoning demons in AI is absolutely possible, but that doesn't necessarily mean what people think it means. It, it It's not as, it's not as horror movie as you think. And so you, if you, you can understand demons as patterns of agency, right. That exist in the world that are disconnected from the highs good, right? That's the way to understand what a demon is. It's like, that's why we say like the demon of lust, because there's nothing wrong with sexual desire, but if sexual desire becomes obsessed with itself and becomes turned into itself, then it becomes demonic in the sense that it, it, it will start to act on you and you'll become a slave of it. And then you'll be submitted to this thing and it'll ride you. It'll, it'll run you like, it'll like a program and you'll just keep cycling into its desire. Right. And so, that is all contained within human language. And so the large language models have behavioral patterns encoded into them just by proximity of words, right? Just by just through the way the large language models work, which is predicting and calculating proximity of potential words. Those things are in there. And so that's why when Bing, if you remember the the, the Bing, the crazy Bing AI that came out it was about a two years ago where it was like all of a sudden being was your 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 obsessed ex or you know was was you know was telling you not to hurt it and like don't and and being a victim and doing all this weird stuff it's because these these behavioral patterns exist in the language models and so you could say that it is not at all difficult to imagine that you can summon a demon using ai that you could isolate an aspect of human agent of agency in the world and that you could take in, and I even asked one of the, one of the AI developer once, and I tried, I tried to explain it. I said, so think of the God Mars, for example, like the God Mars is a coherent set of relationships that has existed in reality and has a whole tradition behind it, a whole thing. And there's a, there's like a, a map of, there's a map around it. There's a, a linguistic map around it. And I said, could you isolate that and then talk to Mars? And he said, of course you can. Like why? Of course, why wouldn't you be able to do that? You could, you could do all kinds of things like that. So in that way, it's a. So it's not, it's not as like weird and crazy and kind of horror movie thing that you that you think, but you can weaponize that in ways that is really scary. Just like the manner in which ancient occultists would try to summon a demon and submit it to their power to use it in the world to do the things they want. Now that's something that you'll be able to do with AI for sure. It's like I can summon all this all the 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 relationships in a certain aspect of human activity then i that i don't even know it's like kind of unconscious because we don't we're not totally conscious of it, but i can summon it and then i can weaponize it and i can use it to manipulate i can use it to convince i can use it to to do whatever and so in some ways the danger of summoning demons with ai is a real it's a real danger um but it's not as it's not as fantastical as you might want to think. It's more just kind of, it's a more uh, on the ground reality. Now, in terms of art, it's just it's just so fascinating to think of. <clears throat> I 
there's a a, a a friend of mine, a, a collaborator of mine, Michael Martin on Twitter, who you should everybody should follow. He said, he said, I didn't think that the future would be all of us trudging along, working, and art making poetry and making <laughs> art, yeah. and I, like computers making making art and poetry. It's like that's the weird inversion of that's when you're submitted to like a principality. It's like <laughs> so. So I I think that it's. You know, so I don't know what's going to happen in terms of I think I think that one of the things that we'll do just to to help artists to not freak out, one of the things it'll do, it'll fetishize the art object even more, which means that if you make real art with your hands and you actually make real art objects and you have the capacity to do that, that you will your work will be uh, probably looked for even more than before because of the excess. And like so so it's not like it's not like art made by humans is going to go away. I think it'll actually probably go up in, in value. Not the mediocre stuff though. Mediocre mediocrity will probably go away, but like the excellence will remain. Yeah. I think physical objects and, and things like that in general are going to increase in value as kind of the, the hyper reality thing makes, makes all of that feel almost Walmartish, right? To the mass production of it and the, the frivolity of it just makes it, it, it very low in value. With, with those hyper agents that you were talking about that, you know, uh, may or may not be summoning, what do you think the, you know, that means for people who are being, uh, th I think you've probably run into James Polos before he, he uses the term catechized by the algorithm, right? Yeah. It's, it, you know, their, their mind is being trained, their values are being trained, their, their, you know, their, their kind of sphere is being trained by the algorithm. Is that one way we could see again, kind of a a, a terrible re reenchantment of the world? Is is through these hyper agents acting through algorithms that are kind of altering the way that people see the world and interact with each other? D definitely, you know the it's mostly so. If you want to kind of understand what's what's going on in terms of it's, in terms of the the social media and the algorithm and stuff you can understand that in some ways it's the consequence of worshiping mammon like that's a, maybe a good way to understand it which is that the motivation to create these systems that function we're on on advertisement and all they want is your attention at least that's how it was at the outset it's like all facebook wants is for you to keep looking at facebook so they can run ads for you that's all that these systems wanted at the outset. But that created a side effect, right? Which was even without knowing it, just by using massive computational power, that they ended up focusing on the worst of human qualities, which is that if I want to get someone glued to Facebook, I'm not going to give them like philosophy and, and religious thinking. I'll give them outrage and I'll give them porn and I'll give them, you know, like, all these things that like, I'll give them opposition. I'll give them a fight because fights will keep you locked in, you know? Uh, and so you could see this is, if you want to understand a hyper agent, this is a good way to understand it. It's like, it's not like Zuckerberg wanted you to, wanted to do that. It's that, it's that these patterns are real, right? These hyper agents, they're real patterns of behavior in the world. And you can become, if you, if you act with the wrong intentions, then you can become a vehicle for those patterns to, so just the idea of everybody, all they want is money. And that's one of the problems with AI too. It's like everybody realized that AI might be dangerous, that AI might destroy us, but everybody knows that whoever is in front is going to make the most money. And whoever doesn't, doesn't run the race is going to lose out and is going to be the last one in the game. So, so everybody's just running to implement AI in every single thing that we have, all the while knowing 
that it might possibly the most be the most dangerous thing that's happening. That's a hyper agent. Mm -hmm. That's literally a type of agency that is more than the individual that is using us as its feet in order to move into the world. It's like, it's Sauron building a body, right? Sauron is using everybody's greed and everybody's desire and everybody's desire for power in order to build his body. Something so, you, oh, sorry, go ahead. I know, go ahead. Something, something you said earlier had my brain turning. You, you had mentioned that, you know, the, despite their declared atheism, the kind of the passion uh, with which the, the progressives kind of want to bring certain re uh, semi-religious spiritual aspects back in uh, kind of means they're winning, I guess, this moment uh, where things might, might be becoming more spiritual. Uh, you know, is there, is there an irony where the more religious, more Christian, generally kind of conservative is is unable to imagine a more spiritual world where the atheists are driving towards it at a thousand miles an hour. Well, what, yeah, one of the issues I think with Christians, and it's one of the things that have fed us to the moment we're now, is that at some point, who knows exactly when, but at some point Christians stop to understand that what Scripture is talking about and what Christ is talking about is actually how reality works. It's not just it's not just a way to get to heaven, right? It's not just a way to get saved or whatever. And so I think that because of that, in the modern age, Christians gave up the problem of how reality works, gave it to the scientists, gave it to the, to the philosophers, and stopped even asking those questions, stopped dealing with those questions. Um, and what, and what the, a lot of the postmodern stuff and a lot of the feminism and a lot of the activism stuff that has a deeper understanding about how reality actually works and how you drive towards identity and how you create feeling of participation. And so because of that, they're there for the, for the moment, they're winning that, that game, but it's been happening for a long time. It's not new. It's been happening since the sixties, pretty much, you know, and, and we've been fed with narratives and stories uh, that, that have led us to this moment. So, but, the truth is that the truth is that at some point the beast kills a whore. I don't know what to tell you. It's like this is not the one. This the this is not going to win. The postmodern religion of idiosyncrasy is not going to win, and we shouldn't be happy about that because what's going to come after is not particularly going to be. It might not be great. Yeah, so something that is is not desirable, but unfortunately is inevitable. So you might as well prepare. I guess is the yeah, way to I look mean, at it. We should we need, definitely need to prepare. Right? We saw a little bit of that. I think COVID is a good way to understand it. You know, it's like COVID was the absolute clampdown of authority, and the absolute desire to control identity down to the minute. You know, and so that seems to be what is what we're heading towards so i think that like you said the, the the only thing that can help us survive that is is connection to the people around us is our families you know the people that are in families will definitely have more advantage people that are connected in their parishes and churches and groups and, and you know any kind of thing that connects you in real life to other people will will be the only mode of resistance, you know? And that happened during COVID too. Like, you know, for us, we had our little, whatever, alternative 
world that got set up during COVID where, you know, it was all illegal and all not, not in, but it was, it made, it helped us survive. Whereas I have friends that went all out here in, in Quebec. It was crazy. I mean, it was like, we needed pass, pass, uh, vaccine passports to go to church. You know, that's how crazy it became. And I have friends whose children are still tempted to wear masks now and are, and are so afraid, like just afraid beyond belief because they just kind of played along. So I think that, 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 yeah, staying connected close by is the solution. Being deliberate about community maybe is the best way to think about that. I th yeah, I think that's right. Well, we're coming up on an hour, but I have some questions in the audience if you have a little bit of sure. time. Yeah. All right, excellent. Let's head over here real quick. Uh, we've got uh, Creeper Weirdo. I only have the best audience, uh, don't worry. Uh, so good to see you, Jonathan, here. I know Snow White and the uh, uh, and the Widow Queen, and I can't wait to read it. Congrats on the Daily Wire show also. Well, thanks, Creep Creeper Weirdo. That's very kind. <laughs> uh, he said, uh, you said, uh, you said that you don't think that things can change through politics, so it's narrative. Then what's a good way to capture, alter the narrative? Yeah, so I mean, that's one of the things that I've been saying now for years is we need to tell better stories. You know, one of the things that has happened, and this is actually a great time to do that, because one of the things that has happened is that we delegated storytelling to the entertainers, which is a weird thing. But we did that, you know, since especially since the 60s. And so we basically have been captured by storytelling. And now all the things that have provided us narrative, which is our, our TV series and our movies and our video games or whatever, are all so completely captured. Um, but what's great about it is that it obviously, like I said, nothing goes just in one direction. So now it's reached such a such a point that the ideology and the madness is so strong that they're the 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 entertainers are not able to give us stories that people actually care about. And so people just stop caring. People just yeah. stop being interested. And so because of that, there's an opportunity now to tell better stories. And that's one of the reasons why we're doing this uh series of fairy tales. We started with Snow White, and I'm going to kind of retell the fairy tales with a a, a desire to tell them with reverence and with a kind of love for the original story, but also uh, maybe a type of subtlety and a, and, a, and a capacity to understand what's going on that might not be as present in the original uh, grim versions. Um, but I think it's a, so there's a, a massive opportunity because people are like, even the studios, like people are fleeing them. People are fleeing Disney. They're like, they're losing their best talent and those people are still around. You can, there are ways to, to, to capture the storytelling moment. Yeah, the, the implosion of Disney is truly amazing. Just watching them acquire every major property, looking like they were just going to be this unstoppable juggernaut. And just, it's so clear that just, yeah, just completely crash landed, destroyed every one of those properties. I can't remember the last time someone actually cared about one of the movies that are coming out from those studios anymore. I think you're right. There, there is a, uh, there's an excitement. The big budget isn't enough anymore. People are going to want to see real art. And they're they're going to move beyond. Oh, you spent four hundred million dollars on a movie and actually care about content again. And that's that's a great opportunity for so many on the right. Yeah, definitely. And but people, the the thing about conservative types is that they're not they're usually not as attentive to that for some reason. You know, they're just they're concerned with business and making money and whatever and having families, which is like you need to have families and and all that stuff too. But we definitely need storytellers and people that are willing to jump in and to. Uh, and to provide that because like i said it's it's time so christian artists like you know conservative artists christian artists all that like this is your moment folks like right now is the time to do that as we watch everything 
implode. You know, they need these fairy tales. Like I'm doing it myself, but I'm telling you, they're up for grabs now because Disney doesn't want them. Right. The Disney literally doesn't want Snow White. They're like, and I knew that's one of the reasons why we put out Snow White this year is because two years ago I heard that Disney was putting out Snow White for their hundredth anniversary, and I was like, what? They can't tell that story. I was like, I knew it. I was like, they can't have the kiss. They can't have the dwarves. There's so many aspects of that story that they cannot do. Mm. And I thought they're not, they're basically can't make Snow White. So I thought now's the time to do this. Yeah. A great, a great strength is just the ability to tell the truth through narrative that, you know, that, that uh, kind of the left can't touch. That's uh, yeah. It's a superpower in many ways. Last part of that question actually dovetails here. I heard somewhere that the best Christian stories are uh, godless or don't directly have God in them. I was wondering what you thought of that. Yeah, I think that this is something, and people find that weird, but this is something that I think is important to understand the hierarchy of how you tell stories. So you, you have to be careful that the secular stories are not told in the same way that the Bible is told. And so if you're going to tell secular stories that aren't actual, like the story of saints or the story of holy people or the, or stories that are equivalent to, to what is there in the tradition, then you should take it down a notch and show how secular reality and how all those realities actually kind of cohere towards, towards meaning, towards purpose. You can hint at the, the idea of something transcendent, but you have to be careful not to be too explicit because then it just looks like proselytizing. And then it just looks like, and that's why most of the Christian movies are horrible because it's just basically like a, like evangelism moment and nobody's going to pay to be evangelized. I don't know what to tell you. Like, whereas people like, uh, obviously we know C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, but then also Dostoevsky and some of the 19th century, there are other 19th century authors as well that we can take as examples as ways to tell stories within the Christian world without being, uh, without being, pro without proselytizing. Well, one of the things you said is that, you know, the, the Bible, you know, Jesus, they're trying to communicate the way the world works. So in many ways, simply communicating the truth of the world is itself a Christian truth. And so if you're properly displaying that you will be delivering a Christian me message, you'll be implicitly Christian, whether, it's explicit about its kind of alter call at the end or not. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, don't put it. Yeah, if you put an alter <laughs> call at the end of your movie, well, you know who's gonna go see it. And yeah, then, you know, it won't be reaching any of the people who need the alter call. Yeah, exactly, so, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. literally the preaching to the choir. Yeah. Uh, uh, Jake Bowen here says, "How aware are uh, are of the Yarvin critique of the modern world are people like Jordan Peterson and the IDW?" I guess, yeah, those those are circles you'd be a little more familiar with. Do, are you familiar with Curtis Yarvin? Have you yeah. heard anything? Well, I saw him at ARC and I wanted to talk to him, but he was heading out. And I was like, I was like, I was like, Curtis Yarvin? And uh, and he kind of said hi to me, but he was, he was, I think he was tired or whatever. So I never actually had the chance to talk to him. I'd be happy to talk to him at some point. Uh, and I'm not sure. I imagine that his criticism is probably the, the, the classical liberal criticism against classical liberalism, mm -hmm. um, which I'll be honest with you, I could say without a without a doubt that jordan peterson is no longer a classical liberal it's like you, you might if you want to listen to stuff that he said seven years ago maybe but if you pay attention to what he's saying now listen to his final speech at arc and you'll see that he's no that that is no longer his take and he recently said on a podcast he said he said we're the counter enlightenment which i was like interesting i mean interesting that you're going all all the way there so, uh, so yeah, but I don't know about the other IDW people, but for sure, I think Jordan is no longer in that camp. All right. Yeah, we've got a uh, just a super chat from Ed there. 
And then uh, Jake Bowen again asks, can we anticipate a highly produced sub 30 minute uh, uh, ultimate explainer on hyper agents uh, escaping the modernist frame, et cetera? Uh, yeah, that, that would be packing it in pretty tight. I'm going to do my best. I, I, so I did a, I did a speech more or less on this, uh, including uh, a lot from Nick Land uh, at an event over uh, in England. And I've been meaning to turn that into a video and an essay at some point. So you might get something along those lines from me. I've got I've got the framework set up already. So uh, at some point, I might, might put that together for you. By the way, I just want to say I never I don't use the word hyper agent for a reason is because I think the problem with the word hyper agent is that it takes for granted that we are single agents. And that now and on top of us, they're like hyper agents. And, and, and also John talks about uh, hyper objects. Uh, and I think that that's a I think that's a mistake because you're a hyper agent, too. Mm. Right. The person is a hyper agent. There are plenty of there's all this agency, multiple agencies within you that are joined into one agent. And that happens also at higher levels. It's the same with objects. It's like there is no the 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 objects that we usually call objects are already hyper objects. And so I'm I'm worried about making that distinction because I think that it 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 gives us the illusion that we have this stable like unity unit based thing down here, and now we have these almost these these stranger things that are hyper on top of it. But I think it's all the same structure all the way through. Yeah, I think it's only useful in so much as people who are kind of stuck in this completely uh, non-spiritual individualistic framework. It allows them to understand something that could act outside of them that isn't directly tied to like the God of the Bible. I think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I understand what you mean. That is, there's that too. Like people don't. And also the problem with is that, yeah, the problem is that also people, they, because of the frame of the angel and demon thing, they, they kind of struggle. It's one of the things in Christianity is a little more difficult. Like we have fairies and, in Christianity, but we don't have neutral agents like su supra personal agents so much. It's it's so, but a lot of those agencies are not are kind of neutral. C.S. Lewis does a good job at trying to hint at that. Where he has, I don't know if you remember in in the the trilogy, he he has the the these these god figures that are like angels, but then at the end they see them as the god Mars and Venus, and saying that in some ways the the, the, there's a distorted version of that which the devil has distorted toward mm -hmm. being kind of negative aspects but that in their truest form they are transparent vehicles for the higher for higher participation um so he's he's trying to deal with that problem of like how to how to talk about these these transpersonal agencies i like transpersonal agency i like that one i think okay it, yeah all right i have to think about that verbiage there <laughs> Uh, Ed says, what books would either of you recommend on the events and people that led to the devolution scene in the French Revolution, Weimar, Germany, etc.? Um, I mean, I so I, for the French Revolution, uh, I don't know about this, you know, uh, specific actors, but people have always asked me about, like, how do you get different perspectives on the French Revolution? And I always say, you've got Burke, you've got Carlyle, and you've got De Maestra, and they all wrote... Uh, kind of summations on on the French Revolution, the events they think that were uh, involved in. I think those give you kind of full the spectrum from kind of a classical liberal to fully uh, reactionary takes on that. So that would that would be my suggestion. Yeah, I totally agree. I think I think for sure. Most, the thing is that most people don't read the mess. They don't even know about his existence, and so it's probably a good idea to 
to help to help to remind people that that perspective was there at the outset. Yeah, it's he's he's writing right close to the event, and it's a it's a really fantastic. If you haven't read any of his work, I've got a couple different videos on him, and I believe um, that uh, there's a press that has a collection of his works out uh, recently. Some of some of the basic works, so you should definitely check that out if you haven't read uh, him yet. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Jake again, last one. I recently returned to mass, uh, a, a deck, uh, after a decade away because of you, uh, and, uh, Paul, uh, V oh, Vanderclay yeah. Vanderclay. Okay. Yeah. And others in the corner made, uh, uh, made it click. Thank you. Well, yeah, Paul is excellent. I've had him on uh, a number of times. He's, he's really great. Uh, and, uh, guys like Jonathan, I've actually, I had several comments before you even got on Jonathan saying, Jonathan's why I'm not an atheist anymore. So I'm glad you're having him on. So you're, you're doing great work, man. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Paul's great. I love him. I love him too. We just had a conversation today. So, oh, did you? Fantastic. Yeah. Look forward to that. Uh, George, uh, Hey Duke says AI poetry, uh, human servitude is all about inversion and inversion of re-enchantment. Should we all be, uh, uh, should we still be watching the fools? So it, it, yeah, it's like he's. I talked about that quite a bit. I was saying, and I still think, by the way, that this still uh, this still applies because about five years ago, maybe I'm not sure when I started telling people watch Kanye. People watch Kanye. Just watch him. I'm not saying follow him. I'm not saying agree with him. But I'm saying watch him because he's gonna flip. Like he's starting to flip in ways that are prophetic. Like that'll help us understand what's uh, what's coming over the hill. Uh, and sadly, I have to say that that's still true. Uh, and I think that we need to pay attention to those characters because they, they, they're, they're almost divinatory in the sense that they, they manifest what's coming, you know, because things are so unstable that they show us the, how order will be, will kind of come back. So but yeah, like I said, yeah, I'm not saying follow. I'm saying just watch. Yeah, just well, it's it's certainly entertaining if nothing else. Uh, hard <laughs> hard to look away in, in yeah, some ways. Uh, 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 George follows that up by saying, "Thank you for changing my life, Jonathan." So, oh well, that, glory to God is all I can say. Absolutely, and creeper weirdo. Last one, I swear. Uh, John, what does Jonathan think about right wing takes on left on left wing or leftist stories that kind of bother me sometimes? Do you think that the right has a problem? kind of understanding left-wing stories has a problem. You know, they, they often try to mimic them in a oh, certain yeah. way. I think the form without understanding the content. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think, I think that the right wing has been horrible at storytelling, just absolutely yeah. horrible at storytelling for a very long time. And uh, that's why it's like basically Tolkien. Like, that's it. Everybody is like Tolkien, Tolkien, Tolkien. He's the only one in like almost the entire 20th century that people can kind of, you know, or there are a few that, uh, uh, so, so I would say the best thing that the right wing people can do is understand the margin right now is to understand what that is and what its function is and how it plays out. And I think that the best thing that, that right leaning, uh, storytellers can, can do is tell stories that also include the perspective of the margin in them. And that way you actually, um, you could say that you, short circuit the problem that the, the left winger is, is presenting you. Um, that's the best thing. So it's like people don't know, but I mean, some people probably know we published, we're publishing this graphic novel series called God's dog. And God's dog is about St. Christopher. Who's a, 
who is who is in the, there's a secret tradition about Saint Christopher. Most people don't know is that he's a dog-headed man. He's a he's a cenocephalus, right? He's a monster from the edge of the world. And despite that, that he became a saint in the Christian Church. And so, telling a story like that, like not in my case, that's what he wanted to do. My brother and I is like we're telling a story about a monster from the edge of the world who's excluded, who has all these character, all these characteristics. But now we have that story really grapple with. The problem, the opportunity of identity, the danger of the margin, the opportunity of the margin, because the margin is dangerous, you know, obviously, uh, but it also has opportunity. So it's like trying to find the balance rather than just going full identitarian, because identitarian stuff is boring and it's it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't account for reality. So you have to find that a, a true representation of the world. Yeah, there's a coarseness um, in many ways, uh, you know, that just. It, it not integrating all the different aspects are, is is always a mistake, I think. And uh, so, all right, guys. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up. But of course, thank you, Jonathan, for coming on. Uh, had a great time talking with you. And of course, guys, if you're for some reason not watching his YouTube channel or reading any of his work, his other stuff, you definitely need to check all that out. But thank you for coming on. It was really great to having a chat with you. It was fun. Anytime. Absolutely. All right, guys. Well, thank you for coming on. Uh, and or sorry, thank you for watching, guys. And make sure that if you uh, have not subscribed to this channel, if it's your first time here, make sure that you do so. And of course, if you'd like to get these broadcasts as podcasts, make sure that you subscribe to the Warren McIntyre Show on your favorite podcast platform. Great questions, guys. Always nice having the audience around. Uh, and I will talk to you guys next time.